Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. Not many can say they've left a legacy in policing, but in part two of my chat with retired Chief Superintendent Karen Daybar, that's exactly what she has done. In 2013, Karen was selected to lead as Acting Chief Constable the National Police Integrity Programme for England and Wales. This included leading the development of the National Code of Ethics for Policing. Policing needs a Code of Ethics, it needs to understand what it can and importantly can't do against this code of ethics. This allows for officers right up and down the country to carry out their roles and decision-making processes in a manner in which they will withstand scrutiny, are ethical, lawful and importantly fair. It was Karen and her team's work in 2013 that was to shape the decision-making for forces right up and down the country, allowing commissioners, chief constables and senior executive members to ensure its staff, both sworn and unsworn, worked to the highest standards against this developed code of ethics. In this episode of Protect and Serve, I discuss with Karen this vitally important piece of work that she oversaw, which on its completion drew a line under her incredible 30-year career in policing. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. You, you've been throughout your career, uh, you've said earlier on, you've, you've always challenged uh, officers that uh, haven't quite been able to meet the standard 
and you've challenged bad behavior you know there's that famous saying the standard you walk past is a standard you're willing to accept and i think you know you've, you've definitely shown throughout your career that you're willing to to challenge bad behaviors and, and make sure people behave to the standard that's expected of them and your next move was into um the fa- back into the family unit within central as a detective sergeant and your kind of first sort of exposure to bad behavior within the ranks to which you weren't prepared to sit back and watch and you're willing to challenge you talk us through the experiences of an officer who is put in a position and how you go about challenging bad behavior oh it's i often questioned myself why i did it and probably just think oh just find a reason to move them and move them but it, it it went against the grain for me um and and probably when you actually sit down and talk to these individuals there will be a nine times out of ten i have found there's probably a well-being issue going on so it's approach it with understanding and empathy rather than you're a bad person and i'm going to move you you know nine times out of ten there's always been a well-being issue underneath it and so that that has always been um my approach what's going on that is making this individual behave this way um, but equally, as a sergeant, inspector, chief inspector, whatever it is, whether you're a manager or a leader, you've also, you're also committed to the other people on the team who will always come and say, this person's not pulling their weight, what are you going to do about it? So there's a responsibility there um, where when you've got, you've got a team of five people and one of them's not performing, somebody else has got to pick up the slack. Um, and, and there was also a personal thing for me is, you know, what, what are you saying about me if you think you're going to get, if you're going to behave in this way and I'm not going to do something about it? So there's also that personal integrity for me that I thought, no, I'm, I'm going to have to challenge this. And, it was, you know, it wasn't easy. And I almost got a reputation for, I almost got a reputation for it, which I don't know if that's good or bad, but hey-ho. And I don't know to this day how that did or didn't impede my career. But at the end of the day, you've got a team. One of somebody's not pulling their weight. You've got you've got to tackle it, and I did. Um, but it wasn't easy, and um, yeah, it's, it, there's been some very difficult times. Not just for me as the person tackling it, but sometimes the team around when you've got to then start pulling together your evidence to present your case as to why this person needs to go down misconduct or something else. Um, and, and they're difficult times. They take up a lot of capacity and energy. But at the end of the day, as far as I'm concerned, we're here to serve the public and I need everybody to be operating as close to 100% as they can be um, to deliver for the public. Um, and it is, OK, what's going on? Let's sit down. Let's talk about it. Let's find a solution because I need you. You're being paid and I need you to be out there working um, in accordance to the expectations we have of police officers in this force and any force to be fair taking that viewpoint and um coming to today's date just quickly what are your thoughts on the current cultural challenges in policing in terms of that there are an array of challenges across many different forces across the country some have been in special measures some are coming out some are just going in you know um, there's been cases of misogynistic behavior 
these WhatsApp groups and, and racial behaviour, really, really quite sad stories, which tragically end up blanketing entire services, you know, whether it be the Met, Greater Manchester, West Yorkshire, whatever the case may be, the whole force gets labelled with the same with the, with the same essence of what one individual may be responsible for. As I say, go back to my question, what do you think are the current challenges in policing in relation to culture? They're huge. They are huge. Um, the, the, the culture, what is the culture? It's the people within the organisation. Um, and people are different. They come with all sorts of stuff, if I could use that word, um, it, into the organisation. And it's not just policing. You know, I, I work for the NHS now. Similar, you know, there, there are cultural issues going on everywhere. Um, so it, it is, it's huge and it's tough. Um, but at the end of the day, um, it needs to be tackled um, head on. It, it, it absolutely needs to be tackled head on because the, you've got the majority of police officers working so hard and they're probably working harder now than I was working back in the early 80s, 90s, 2000, because numbers have been decimated and crime and the whole policing gambit has got significantly harder. So it, to me, it's just not fair that we're not tackling those cultural issues and tackling those individuals that are bringing the reputation of forces down um, because the ones who are working hard, they don't seem to have a voice. They're not being heard. They're just cracking on quietly day in, day out. And yet it's the bad ones that get all the publicity, the headlines and impact on the reputation of policing in this country, which is, is very, very sad to see. Very, very sad to see. You know, there was a time you could say policing in Great Britain is the best. Mm. It probably is, but you wouldn't think it from from the headlines that seem to be there day in, day out. So between 2003 and 2004, you took up the position as Detective Inspector of Professional Standards. Um, and you're more importantly at the in Intelligence and Integrity Unit. Um, it, it, is it your view that to be a successful leader in policing at the ranks of, well, any ranks really, probably in the in the, in the more senior roles that you need to have that exposure to the professional standards environment to understand what mistakes are being committed by officers what officers are doing so that you can understand and and implement strategies to prevent those at a local level that's an interesting question i've never really thought of it that way um i think on a personal level yes um but then i'm sure there's plenty of current officers that would say you're talking nonsense, Cam. But I, I think you, to, to go, as you go up the ranks, I think you've got to open your eyes to the fact there are some pretty bad individuals in policing and don't be fooled to think that there isn't. Um, and then to be able to be confident to tackle them. Um, so whether it is a stint in professional standards department or not, I don't know. But I think you you need to go in with your eyes wide open. Because it's interesting, you know, um, my brief stint in that area of policing was, you know, if we saw an increase in excessive use of force complaints from a particular station or area, we would start to monitor and look at retraining and try to understand why is this occurring? Is there a particular culture? Because is, is there something wrong at that early leadership sergeant supervisory role that's not nipping things in the bud quick enough and, and not managing properly to allow these things to 
to to fester and to grow bigger and bigger so i was always quite fascinated in terms of you know that intelligence led proactive professional standards work and trying to understand cultures and repetitive bad behaviors so that we could nip them in the bud before they got bigger and more worse really if that's Oh, absolutely. You know, we used to look at stop searching, um, use of force, those sort of things. And you you, you think, oh, it's, it's that person again. What on earth is going mm. on? So, yeah, that, whether it's an individual that constantly is getting the complaints or constantly doing stop searches that were questionable or a team or a whole or, or a whole division. Um, and, and, and that's where you, you, you do need to have your your means of getting that information and intelligence in to then say, okay, we need to look at this and we need to do something about it. Um, because, you know, from my experience, the officer that's constantly um, getting complaints or about excessive use of force is also the one that's probably handing out stop search um, dockets willy-nilly. And equally, when you look at their crimes, you think, mm, not so sure about the quality of your crime recording um, and your investigation. So, you know, it it it, it presents a picture um, to be addressed. Um, and it's and that's where support for, you know, your first line supervisors and your inspectors is, is critical to, like you say, to nip those sort of things in the bud before they get out of hand. I want to kind of press the fast forward button here, because as you said earlier on, you're movement through the ranks between inspector to superintendent was arguably quite quick was quite quick it was quite a progressive movement before you knew it you're up there at the rank of superintendent and you're occupying the position between 2007 and 2009 as in the safer comms directorate you know the operational support functions as the silver commander overseeing all those operational functions which i suppose you could often describe as the sexy parts of policing firearms response operational you know you've got your your dog's response, you've got all those different facets which people often gravitate to and find very interesting. But how is it like managing those departments when they're looking to you for leadership and guidance and knowledge and expertise? It must have been an incredible challenge, but equally very rewarding. I suppose I've got a firearms background, public order, um, awareness and knowledge. So roads policing I was never in. Um, but that's where you use the expertise of the experts, if that makes sense. Yeah. My role as superintendent and I went on. So superintendent in charge of what we call the boys toys, you know, all the the, the Gucci firearms, <laughs> traffic, helicopter, all the rest of it. You, you absolutely right, rely on the expertise of the experts. Um, I, can, I as an individual can't know all that stuff. My role nice. as, as the leader of those departments is to make sure that they can do their job the best of their ability, um, whether that's through budgets, reviewing how they do what they do, shift patterns, whatever it might be. And I was app appointed into that role to in increase the diversity of some of those areas of business. So firearms, traffic in particular, to get more women um, into those departments because they had become kind of macho hubs. So that, you know, that was why I was put into those into those departments. And also at the time was, you know, the years of austerity where we had to sort of take 10 and 20 percent out of the budget. Now, firearms and dogs and all that, you know, these are very expensive areas of business. So it is, you know, we need to make cuts, Karen. So, 
you need to go in there, look and see how we can make cuts of up, you know, 10 and 20 percent. But we still need to deliver two ARVs, you know, armed response vehicles 24-7. We still need a firearms team to response. We still need dogs to go out there and be deployed um, to tackle crime. So, you know, you, I went in there with a briefing without a shadow of a doubt. But, yeah, difficult because you then have to sit and negotiate um, discuss and bring the individuals on board because they're the ones that will say, well, boss, you know what? We could make a save in here. We could make a save in there. We could make a save in there um, because I can't, you know, myself as the head of the department and my head of finance, you know, we don't know the business in that detail. We are relying on those individuals and that's where you've got to build the relationships um, for them to come on board, understand why we need to do it um, and then work together with us to do it. Did you ever have this... Did you ever have the scenario, because as you described it, you're in this environment where you've got a lot, as you described, the, the boys' toys, you've got the helicopter units, traffic cars, firearms, and here you are having to sit down and have difficult conversations with, I'm going to assume, men that have been around a long time, sitting there saying, come on, Gov, do you really know what you're talking about here? We need all these resources. You know, challenging your knowledge and expertise, there must be some challenging conversations there where you've got to stand your ground oh absolutely um but it is about yeah oh and yeah i was definitely told in no uncertain terms i didn't know what i was talking about but that's where you sit down and you say okay well you're you hold this role but and it was usually probably at inspector and chief inspector level you hold this role and i need you as part of your duty to find 10 percent so we're going to do it together or we're not going to do it together. But that's your responsibility right now over the next 12 months to come up with a plan of how we're going to find um, 10% or whatever it might have been. Um, and it, and it's, it's, it's working with the individual or team of individuals to enable them to understand that there's, there's no option in this. This is what we have to do. The chief has said, the government have said we've got to find these savings. So let's sit down and find these savings. Um, and if you can't find the savings, then I'm going to have to find somebody else who can. Um, mm -hmm. And so it, it's it's that push pull, as I and I think I spoke about earlier. But it, it but it's it's the negotiation to say you know your area of business, you know the best way to find these savings. Let's work on this together. Um, Otherwise, I'll just have to appoint somebody else or we'll find somebody else. And, and that usually motivates them because they love the work they do. And it's a matter of, OK, we need to work with the boss here. It's simple as that. There's no this. It's not Karen. It's the chief constable who's, who, who requires this efficiency saving. Um, and nine times out of 10, it probably was in terms of people. You know, we didn't reduce our capacity in terms of firearms, in terms of firearms officers. Um, eventually, we went to collaboration. But there were savings to be made without a, shadow, without a shadow of doubt. And that's where you then look at firearms, you look at traffic, you look at dogs. Um, it's a whole department. It's just not one department I'm going to hit. Um, it's it's all of the departments. And you sit down with all the heads of the department. And you think, OK, how are we going to do this? Because we have to do it. That's fascinating challenges. That are, and it, it just goes to show you that, you know, as you progress up through those ranks in terms of stepping away more operationally, but more strategically understanding where you can make savings where they need to be made equally because I think at the time, you know, significant cuts were being made um, by the Home Office in terms of police investment. But I, I, the theme in the last, in Series 1 of 
the podcast, Protect and Serve, our theme was ordinary people doing extraordinary work, which is still very much the case through this series. But very much what I want to drill home to everybody that listen to this, listens to this podcast and series too, that is regardless of of gender, regardless of race and regardless of sexual orientation, you can achieve anything in policing. The sky is the limit. Nothing should hold you back. And one another area of that, I also think, which is, and, and you're a clear example of that, is also identifying that you also have a, a learning difficulty in the fact that you were, I say diagnosed, it's established that you had dyslexia um, in quite late in 2009, 2010, which explained a lot about the way you processed and articulated information that you are working on that must have been a a relief for you and b gave you a great opportunity to understand how you could manage such an issue and allow it to support and embrace it and and make you become an even better police leader Uh, absolutely you know i i haven't said it but i took my sergeant's exam three times and i never understood why i found it so so hard um the inspector's exam as well and i remember when I in my probation, I nearly didn't get through my probation because they said you've not done enough traffic process. And I thought, oh my God, that's all numbers and stuff. I hate numbers. Um, and and then I think that and I think I was actually put with a, a, a tutor constable a second time around just to under, to get my head around the traffic process. But you know, it didn't occur to me at all. And it was right towards the end of my career when I went for the Police National Assessment Centre for um, Chief Officer that the results came back and a coach I was working for sat me down and he says, well, Karen, do do you think you actually might be dyslexic? And I said, well, I've no idea. But then you come home and you Google it and you do the online test and you think, oh, my God, I am. Um, And it was both a relief, but also incredibly upsetting because you think oh all these years and all these difficulties mm. um had i been diagnosed at school for example who knows what wh- where my career would have took me um so i worked with a specialist for year for a year went back to pnac the second time and got through um and then you just you just think well now i know i can do things differently because i used to remember going into you know, you get your meeting papers, you'd sit and read the meeting papers the night before. And one of the things with dyslexia is your memory can be pretty horrendous. And I go to the meeting the next day and I think, well, I don't even remember reading this paper. So you develop tactics. Um, you have to develop tactics um, to take on so much information um, and then to go into meetings and talk about it and pull up pointers and that. So, you know, I had to learn how to do that differently with the help of a specialist. But, you know, I'm immensely proud to think that what it has given me is a way of thinking differently and to see things differently. So, you know, every department I went in, it's like, well, why do we I used to question everything. And I even beat myself up as to why do you constantly question stuff? But it was because that's the analytical approach I used to take, which then in, in, you know, as I went up the ranks, served me very well and was the kind of thinking that. Um, was needed to tackle some of the thorny issues that we had to tackle because I just approached it differently um, and was, you know, was I was able to find the efficiency savings. I was able to make changes to the ways, the way we do business um, because I just approached it differently. And I didn't, I suppose I didn't, I stopped beating myself up for it um, once I knew why. And, you know, I see on social media, you know, there's, you know, there's police officers out there who are dyslexic 
And, you know, they're shouting from the rooftops, which I am immensely proud about um, mm. because it wasn't like that in my day. So, you know, hats off to them. You know, we have to embrace the, the difference that neurodiversity brings because policing cannot carry on just having one mindset to tackle the problems that we've got. We need to embrace that different um, way of thinking to, to tackle the problems that we've got in policing now. Is there a conversation that should be had that maybe these sort of um, issues should be tested for when officers come in so they can be provided with greater support and a better understanding as to how maybe to process information? Absolutely, because I, I'm not convinced that the recruitment process actually recognises that some people are probably dyslexic. Um, you know, the recruitment process as they stand, as, as far as I understand, and I've not been involved in police recruitment. You know, I did a piece of work with the force recently. Is it really getting the best out of people who may come with um, those kind of um, that neurodiversity? I don't know. Um, but I think there is a conversation to be had um, and what the reasonable adjustments that are needed for that recruitment process, whatever it might be. But it is at the end of the day there as a police officer, you've got, you have to take in copious amounts of information. You need to mm -hmm. then recall it. Um, you need to understand <clears throat> it. You need to stand up in court and give your evidence. So I think it's possible for anybody to do that with the necessary support and understanding. Let's talk about the Strategic Command course at uh, Brams Hill. It's quite a famous location where many senior leaders of the past have gone through and have completed it. What was that course like for you uh, attending it? You know, uh, again, I'd like to reflect, if we may, uh, on your ethnic background in terms of your peers that were with you. Was there a broad representation of senior officers attending that course? Um, what was it like to undertake it? And did you get an awful lot out of it? Ooh, that's a very loaded question. Um, what, only one other BME officer, and we remain friends to this day. Um, predominantly male, as you'd expect. Um, did I get a lot out of it? I would say 50-50. Hmm. I would say 50 50 um the, the week the course is divided up into operational the week the finance week and all the rest of it um so incredibly interesting um i think the most interesting bit was talking to other individuals from across the country because it's an opportunity where you talk to um future leaders from across the country so that was absolutely exceptional um and some of them have remained friend good friends to this day um, I think the, the bit I didn't get much out of it, and I said it at the time, and you know, was the two week the the two weeks of the diversity training module. Um, th that I found particularly hard um, because I I suppose I found it unsophisticated. Is all I'll say on that. I just found it unsophisticated so so much so that I do recall. Um, ringing my coach and saying, I can't believe this is one of the exercises they make, they're they making us do. This is this is abysmal. Um, and quite despondent about it to think, you know, these are the great future leaders of Great Britain and this is the best we can do. But I suppose my approach was, and you know, I could hear my dad's voice ringing in my ear, you've got to be in it to change it. So stick it out, mm. girl. Um, 
which I did. And I've gone on to do what I can do in terms of um, raising awareness around diversity, how we're going to bring about a more diverse workforce. Um, and I worked on that to the day I retired and still do work towards that. But yeah, it was it was not the best best period of um, my policing career, but yeah, made some good friends, um, learned some stuff without a doubt. I want to move on to um, 2012. Your head of crime, your chief superintendent, and a fascinating investigation comes across your desk. You get a phone call that there's been a burglary at the um, Cambridge University and a quantity of Chinese artefacts, which are priceless, have been stolen. Tell us about that investigation, because it was a national issue. Yes. Um, so, yeah, you, you're doing your on-call as you do week in, week out. Get a phone call to say, boss, we've had a burglary at the museum in Cambridge. You you don't really think much of it. OK, tell me what's happened. You know, some some items from the universe have been stolen, some jade pots, I think it was described to me as... Um, but by the time you arrive in, into the office and you, you, the moment you walk into headquarters, you think, oh, something's kicked off here. And, you're, and you know, the chief constable's calling you in. You think, no, this is pretty serious. Um, so I went down to Cambridge, um, went to the university, sat there with the representative from the museum. And without a shadow of a doubt, you realise the enormity of the burglary um, because of the value of the items, which were, were described to me as priceless. Um, you know, some absolutely exquisite jade, Chinese jade artifacts had been literally put into what we believed was an IKEA holdall and put in the back of a van and driven off out of the city. Um, and like you say, that was the, what we believed was you know, high value burglary without a doubt, but it went on to be a um, national, um, what was described at the time then as a level two investigation um, involving a number of forces because of a serious and organised crime group that was um, targeting high value artefacts from museums across the country. So how, what's your priorities? You know, we talk at investigations about conflicting priorities now. You're in the position of chief superintendent, so very much managing the resources. But for you, as the chief super in that investigation, what is the priorities for you to make sure things get done in the appropriate order? Or are you running with the hypotheses that you've got a fantastic team on the ground, just let them do their thing, they'll report to you what you need to know and let them get on with their jobs. It's your job to give them the skills and the space to get on with it very much pulled together the, the team and I had some fantastic detectives working on it and it is to then give like you say give them the space the resources the capacity to do what they need to do um, and to give them what we call in in policing top cover because it was highly political um, it was a highly political investigation because you know at the end of this is Cambridge University at the time the university were expecting another big um, exhibition of Chinese artefacts. So it's managing the, you know, the political fallout, the media fallout. That that was my responsibility to give that top cover um, with the support of, you know, the chief officers in the force at the time. 
but equally to make sure the investigation the investigation team can get you know we need detectives on this we, they need somewhere to work from um, they need cars they need a budget but, you know that's my role to do um, and let them as very experienced detectives to get on and do the work that they need to do and from my perspective is okay check in make sure i'm getting regular briefings of what's going on um, so i can do the media i can do the political top cover but equally what do you need how much is it cost because i've got to then go to force um go to force speak to finance this is going to be a long haul and we need to make sure that we do it right for the reputation of the organization but equally because cambridge um the cambridge university expect this to be detected so that that, that really is my role um and for them to say, look, we've got a problem with this. We're, we've got an impasse here. We need you to speak to, you know, chief officers in other forces. Um, that's where that's where I was my role. But I've got a brilliant team of detectives who are the ones that have to get onto the day-to-day -day investigation and make sure they can do it. Because I assume, as you say, this is a politically tense investigation. I assume, you know, one is receiving a phone call at a political level from the Chinese ambassador to the United Kingdom saying. These are items which are significantly important to China as a country in terms of our culture. We would like to see this cleared up, not only to ensure we maintain the reputation between us, maybe supplying artefacts to Cambridge University to allow them to do their work, but you know, we would like to see these items recovered. To this, to this day, from my knowledge, they've not been recovered. But remember, I'm just a cog in the wheel. So, you know, even as a dizzy heights of chief superintendent, I'm being called in by the chief, the chief officer to say, Karen, what's going on? I want an update because I'm getting phone calls. So the phone calls are going into the chief or the deputy chief constable. I equally need to be able to answer the questions that they're going to ask me. So you, you need to make sure you've got that command structure and that communication structure in place um, to service whoever it might be that is asking the questions, whether it's somebody from the, you know, the Chinese embassy via the home office um, or it's a, or somebody from, you know, regional crime or, you know, vice chancellor in the university. Um, you know, we're accountable. At the end of the day, we are accountable to deliver and we are accountable to the public. And that is, you know, Chinese embassy, home office, vice chancellor. So it's recognising that and being prepared for those questions um, to do the media briefings um, in a way that meets the needs of the stakeholders, for want of a better description of them. Before we move on to the next point, which is just kind of rounding up your career in 2013, I just want to reflect very quickly on your family. You've, you've, you've got a, a daughter and, and, a, and a husband who's been a very, very successful district court judge. That's a, a really interesting family dynamic. And I just wanted to quickly reflect on, you know, to allow us to do our jobs in policing, there are often amazing families behind us who support us, who give us, you know, that shoulder to cry on, that ear to kind of talk through situations. What was the conversations like at the dinner table between your husband and yourself and what your daughter was witnessing in terms of you putting these bad guys and girls before the courts, him probably seeing and processing some of these people and having the legal arguments? It must have been an incredibly supportive dynamic, but equally allowed you to have some of those robust conversations at both ends of the legal system spectrum. Yes, and I think if you were to ask my daughter that question, I think she'd have a, probably a different outlook. It was it was interesting. I was I was glad to retire, and I'd always promised my family, and that's just my you know my family unit, but my wider family, that I would retire 
on the dot at 30 years, which I did do. Um, not not least because I, I think there comes a point where you think, right, enough is enough. Hand over the baton to um, the younger generation, so to speak. And I wanted to be young enough to go on and do other stuff. So, you know, to the day, hung my uniform up, proud as punch. It was weird to walk out the door without that warrant card and that almost safety blanket of being a police officer. But, you know, hey ho, I've thoroughly enjoyed my retirement and enjoy what I do now, which probably equally as busy, but doing stuff that I want to do on a day to day basis and manage my own diary, which I think is the most important thing that I now manage my diary and I'm not on call, which is an absolute godsend going to give you a hypothetical which sometimes people loathe but if mark rowley picked up the phone to you tomorrow and said karen you're the person to lead my um, diversity team to, to make the met more inclusive and to look at policing across their organization would you say yes or you'd say i've done my time i'd say hell no i've done my time <laughs> <laughs> i've Let's, done let... my time um, I can give you a bit of advice and I can, you know, I can give you tips, but no, no. I, and, and this, and I suppose this is right at the, I, I do question how I actually survived 30 years of policing because geez, I hate being told what to do. It's just a trait. Um, <laughs> and I now have that freedom within a certain degree. I've got that freedom, even with the work I do now with the NHS, um, so, no, I wouldn't, you know, I don't want to go back to the nine to five role. What I do now gives me the freedom and the creativity to really take my strengths to do what I want to do. Um, you know, if if he was to ring and say that, there would still be constraints. You'd still be almost in a box. And no, I've done my time doing that. I'll wish him well. I'll wish him well, but no. 2013 before your career wraps up in 2014 you were given uh to say asked almost a direction from the chief constable to take up a position at the college of policing as the chief executive uh, where you were instructed uh, under the home office by theresa may to establish a new code of ethics across policing nationally where you assume the temporary role of assistant chief constable in that position what an incredibly proud moment to be able to lead on such an important document across the country, which would be implemented and handed up in 2014. Talk us through that. Well, yeah, so phone call comes in um, from Chief Constable Alec Marshall, who'd just been appointed as the chief exec of the newly formed College of Policing. Um, and one of the probably the biggest, most high profile piece of work the college had to do was to develop a code of ethics for policing along of, along with some other um, integrity related um, work streams um, and you know in policing you somebody calls you to do a piece of work I'm still a warranted officer yes sir I'll do it and it, I was intrigued to be fair I was intrigued um, pulled together a project team you know an individual who had worked with the college policing from New Zealand um, a number of other individuals. And yeah, it was get your head down. We had a very, we were given a very tight timescale to deliver it. Um, and we were operating in what was a very highly charged atmosphere um, of concerns over media, political and public concerns over police integrity, which was been the drivers um, that 
which were the drivers behind it to develop the code of ethics that Theresa May decided that was required in policing. And I didn't really see it as a problem. You know, what's wrong with having a code of ethics similar to what the medical profession had? But um, a lot of resistance, in particular from the Federation, who didn't believe it was necessary. So you're you're navigating a you're navigating a very difficult and challenging national piece of work um, that, you know, it, it was it, it was decided that we would do it for police officers and police staff. So we had to negotiate and influence the unions, uh, Unison and other unions of police staff. But, you know, policing now is you've got police officers who are warranted and police staff who go out and attend incidents and incidents together so it, it made obvious sense to have a code of ethics for everyone in policing but yeah it was a challenge it was it was difficult um a lot of work went into it a lot of consultation you know we 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 consulted with every force in the country we did a number of drafts that we put back out for comment um but i'm proud to say that the final document is what officers who took the time to feedback, wanted to be in that code of ethics. And that was delivered on the Wednesday before I retired on the Friday. And you're working with organisations such as uh, Her Majesty's Inspectorate with colleagues like uh, a former guest on the podcast, Commander Peter Spindler? Absolutely. So um, whilst we were developing the code of ethics, um, we obviously we were liaising with um, HMIC because they were starting to draft up what would have been their um framework for their integrity inspections for forces and yes that's where i met one of your former colleagues pete spindler um we were working with the home office we were working with police and crime commissioners we consulted with them we had them in um, a number of times to say this is what the code of ethics is going to look like this is the sort of wording you know can we have your views can we have your contributions um as to how that is going to how it's going to land in forces because at the end of the day yourself and chief constables will be the ones that need to implement this in force and it is applicable to the chief constable as it is to every officer and police staff in those forces so yeah significant amount of consultation significant amount of negotiation um and within very tight time scales and you know a simple word could change a meaning of a sentence and yeah you know we we agonize sometimes over words or phrases to put in there but we wanted a document that was straightforward that officers could understand and they wanted a document that was a straightforward simple language that they could read and say yes this is how I need to operate as a police officer or police member of staff in UK England and Wales today. Difficult question. That document was completed over nine years ago. Has it been implemented to the extent that you would like to have seen it implemented? Now, that's an in interesting question. Um, and the only way I can answer that is, would probably with a question, would we be seeing the headlines that we are seeing today if um, every officer in the service, every officer and police member of staff had read that document and took it to heart and used it almost as their Bible. I question and wonder. Um, people are people, but, yeah, I do wonder. Has it, there are some... has it made the difference we wanted it to make? 
there are some incredibly talented police officers from a variety of different backgrounds and cultures. What have we got to do as police services going forward to ensure that there is a broad representation of leaders within policing that represent the communities that we look after? We need to nurture talent. We need to nurture talent. Um, you know, I was involved in the BME Progression Programme whilst at the College of Policing about, okay, so who, you know, what BME members of staff, have we, police officers have we got there? Because they, some of them, if they're nurtured, supported, given the opportunities to get the experience um, in a consistent and probably coordinated approach, I think we would see um, more representation at chief officer level than we're currently seeing because it's left to individual forces. And I think if that's the case, um, it, it's never going to happen. We need to do something different. And I think that different is a coordinated approach across all forces. And for chief officers to be held accountable, there are some good officers out there. There's some very good female and very good BME officers out there. But are they being recognised is the question I would ask. Well, Karen, that's an in incredibly good point to finish on. And the last hour and a half has been a fascinating insight into a career where gender, ethnicity, neurological diversity hasn't held you back and has demonstrated if anything you can achieve anything and to be given the mantle of setting out the code of ethics for policing nationally um, is mind-blowing and an incredibly an incredible achievement so on behalf of um, the, the podcast team and I thank you ever so much for your public service um, just rounding out what was what's in your post-policing career now I said I know you said it's important you've got your own diary management you're able to pick and choose what you want to do but what it what it what is uh, part of Karen Daybar's repertoire, repertoire post-policing. Post okay, so I, I'm a non-exec director with Cambridge and Peterborough Mental Health and Community Foundation Trust. And surprisingly, I've got the portfolio for people, quality and safety. So still doing my bit around diversity within the trust. Um, I've got my own company, um, my own leadership um, company, Developing Diverse Leaders. And I work with another company and we're currently doing some fantastic work with Bernardo's charity. So I keep wow. reasonably, I was there, I did work for the Ministry of Justice recruiting magistrates, but I've just resigned from that. Um, and I also develop and design online training with a company that I've also just um, resigned from. So I like to chop and change, um, but yeah, still diversity and developing diverse leaders in any sector is still my passion and giving people the opportunity because I think anybody can do it it's just having the opportunity and the self-belief um, and when I look at my career and a number of individuals I currently work with it is okay who was the one person that said you can do this and then supported coached and mentored them to achieve it um, and that's what I continue to do. Well, congratulations on your 30 years in policing and the work you're doing outside of policing. It's um, really quite incredible. And I'm, I'm, I'm honoured to have to have had to spend the time with you to, to listen about your career. So thank you very much. And again, thank you for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynne Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence.